You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. All right, so this morning we're in Psalm 18, and I want to just set the table for us a little bit here. Psalm 18 is a different kind of psalm um, from what we've seen so far, and there are at least three reasons why. First, uh, Psalm 18 is different because it's longer. Um, This psalm is 50 verses long, which is quite a bit longer than most of the other psalms. The second reason Psalm 18 is different is because this is basically a copy and paste from 2 Samuel chapter 22. If you were to turn back in your Bible to the story of David in 2 Samuel 22, you will find this exact psalm right there, 2 Samuel 22. And its placement there in 2 Samuel, where it's at in 2 Samuel, is strategic. And we're going to come back to this point. Um, But the third reason Psalm 18 is different is because there aren't many other psalms in this same genre. Okay, you could call this psalm a royal song of thanksgiving. And we see in here these two themes are combined. There's kingship and there's praise. And we see both of them in this psalm. And there are times, I think, and you probably experienced this, when you're reading the psalm, you think, hey, wait a second. This doesn't seem to be talking about David. Now, I just want to say, if you think that, I think that's a good thought, and I want to show you why. Okay, so when it comes to the outline of this psalm, it's really simple. There are just two things I want us to see, two basic parts. First, there's rescue, and then there's triumph. Part one, rescue. Part two is triumph. And I want to just tell you, I'm not going to be able to say everything about this psalm. All right, it's just too long. So I can't say everything that could be said about it, but I I do want to say the most important thing, and I want to tell you why it matters, okay? So that's the plan, and uh, before we get started, I want us to pray, and again, this week, I I want to ask you to pray. We did this a couple weeks ago, and um, I want to ask that you would, in this moment, wherever wherever you're at, wherever you're watching from, I want you to I want you to ask God to open your eyes to behold wonderful things in his word. That's actually a prayer taken from Psalm 119. It's really simple. And so would you pray that? It's, It's really simple. You can just pray. Father, open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying that. Okay, so here we are now, part one. This is the rescue. And and we can see this really in verses one all the way to verses to verse 19, one to 19. David begins the psalm with a, a stack of metaphors of who God is in relation to him. Now we know that God exists, God is who he is outside of us. God is who he is, whether or not we recognize him. But as soon as we do recognize God, when we acknowledge that God is real, we then have to account for our relationship to him. God is real. We know that. We said God is real. Then the question is, what is my relationship with him like? That's a question that everybody should ask. God is real. Now, what does that mean for me? Everybody should ask that question. But it's fascinating that too many people don't ask that question. There are too many people who say they believe in God, 
but then they just they just leave it there. And so if that's you, I want to challenge you to fill in the blanks. If you believe that God is real and you are you, what is your relationship to him? What is your relationship like? David is clear about his relationship in Psalm 18. He makes 10 statements about the Lord, about who the Lord is in relation to him. He says in these first few verses, the Lord is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, the one in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. At the very start of this psalm, David declares who God is for him. And then for the whole rest of the psalm, David just shows us what that looks like in action. David was in a hard spot in verses 4, 5, and 6. That's his lament. But then from that hard spot, he called upon the Lord. David cried out for help. And then look what God did. This is in verse 7. And in verse 7, we see here the beginning of a section that, that has all kinds of dramatic imagery to describe God's rescue. This is what's called a, a theophany. It is basically one of those places in Scripture where we see God manifest himself without question. This is like God in your face. This, this is God who is so clear about who he is in his glory. And in this case, um, it actually sounds mythological. Just, just listen here to these, to these words. Verse 7, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Okay, you're supposed to use your imagination here. Verse 8, Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy all around him, thick clouds, dark with water, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. This kind of sounds like a James Cameron movie, right? This is thunder and lightning and hailstorms. It's action. And then in verse 15, we read, Then the channels of the sea were seen. And the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. And at this point, the rescue of David, it, it starts to, to sound a little bit like the Exodus when God rescued his people from the Red Sea. And if we think back to the Red Sea, and along with the Red Sea, if we think about Mount Sinai, where God wrapped himself in smoke and descended upon the mountain in fire, if we think about that, then Psalm 18 really starts to sound like the Exodus. It reminds us of the Exodus, and I think it's supposed to. God's rescue of, of Israel from Egypt was cataclysmic and unforgettable. And David here in Psalm 18, he is claiming that same kind of rescue for himself. What God did at the Exodus, God did for me. That's what David is saying. Same God, same salvation.
And this makes sense to us when we understand that the Exodus really is the paradigm of God's salvation in the Bible. This is what we can expect in God's salvation. This is, this is the pattern we see in the Exodus. It's the pattern we see of God's salvation. It's that God's beloved is enslaved or attacked by a wicked enemy. And so God kicks down the door overpowers the enemy and brings his beloved out safely. That's what we see here in verse 19. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So David says, I'm I'm no longer in the path of the sea. I'm no longer in the valley of the shadow of death, but now my feet I'm standing on solid ground because I've been rescued. That's the rescue we see here in verses 1 to 19. That's part one. Now, rescue part one, part two is triumph. And this is what David has been rescued to. This is what the rescue affects This is basically now, the rest of the psalm is this this one topic here. What the rescue affects, the triumph that we see, beginning in verse 20. Now, verses 20 to 24, David here, he basically says more about the nature of his relationship to God. Then in verses 25 to 32, he says more about the nature of God himself. Then in verses 33 to 45, um, David talks about what God did for him. And again, if we're reading this, it, it sounds, the language sounds mythological. I mean, in this section, verses 33 to 45, I mean, David sounds like a superhero. He is storming the enemy lines. He is jumping over walls. He is running as fast as a deer. He is bending bronze with his bare hands. And then he says in verse 35 that the Lord's gentleness made him great. And he's so great, in fact. David is so great that he completely overtakes his enemies. Nobody can stand against him. And all the kings and all the leaders of all the nations, they come and they bow to him. That's verse 43. And then all all foreigners, this is verse 44, all Gentiles, they come and they, they submit to him. Let me just step back and say here for a minute that If we read the Psalms as mainly about us and our experience, we're going to have all kinds of problems with this. What David says about himself here cannot be true of us. We get that sense a little bit in verses 20 to 24 when he talks about his righteousness and his blamelessness. But that's especially the case in verses 33 to 45 when he talks about his supremacy and his power over all nations. What David says about himself in this psalm goes beyond anything we experience. And it actually goes beyond what David himself experiences. This is why Calvin, years ago, he commented on Psalm 18 and said that much of what's said here 
agrees better with Christ than it does with David. You get the sense when you read Psalm 18 that David, he's swinging out of his shoes a little bit here. And the conclusion of the psalm, it confirms that. Look at what David says in verses 49 and 50. Okay, In reflection, David is reflecting upon God's rescue of him and his triumph over the nations. And he says, verse 49, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, the word anointed in Hebrew is the word for Messiah. And when David mentions his offspring here, he has in mind God's promise to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We saw that a couple weeks ago, that 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament because in that place, 2 Samuel 7, it's where God, in line with his promise to Abraham, God makes a promise to David that he will have an offspring, a future son, who will reign as king forever. David has that in mind here. David is referring to that here in Psalm 18, verses 49 and 50. In verse 50, God's anointed, his Messiah, and David's future son are the same. The the great salvation God brings to his king and the steadfast love he shows, it's not mainly about David's experience, but it's about the Messiah's. And that's actually been understood about Psalm 18 since its earliest interpretations. In fact, remember I mentioned at the start that what we find here, this Psalm 18, this is, this is the exact same Psalm that we read in 2 Samuel 22 in the story of David. Now, the superscript in Psalm 18 tells us this. The little words above verse 1 in Psalm 18, they tell us that David sang this to the Lord after the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Okay, In 2 Samuel 22, verse 1, that exact same thing is said. Okay, Which means, now I really want you to get this part. I think this is, I think this is awesome. Okay, So I want you to get this. Since this psalm is a thanksgiving to God for David's military triumph, it is, that's what it is. This is a thanksgiving to God, a praise to God for his kingly victories. Since that's what this psalm is about, we would think that in 2 Samuel 7, it would come immediately after those triumphs. Like after chapter 7 and chapter 8, where we see a long list of David's victories. We would think that this song, this psalm would come after that part in 2 Samuel, but it doesn't. It comes in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. And in the context of 2 Samuel 22, where this psalm is found, that's actually the, the very end of David's life. It comes after his failures. It it comes after the rebellion of his sons. The psalm was written, the song was written by David at one of the highest points in his life. But we find it in the story of David at the the, the terrible, the lowest point of his life. And the question is, why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because 
the writer of 2 Samuel wants us to know that although the house of David is in shambles, it is by the time of chapter 22, although the house of David is in shambles, although David himself is too old and too feeble to even go into battle, because he is by chapter 22, although David is at the very end of his life and his time on earth is almost over, the promise that God made to David still remains. And David's hope, we see this, David's hope is, is not in his current circumstance. His, his hope is not, is not in his current sons. But his hope is in a future son who will one day come. God rescued David and gave him triumph. And David knows that he's just a type. David is just a foreshadowing of the greater rescue and triumph that God will one day give his Messiah. Like if the Messiah ever found himself enslaved or attacked by a wicked enemy. Like maybe the wickedest and worst enemy of all. Like maybe death itself, which is actually what Psalm 18 verses 4 and 5 sound like. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Did the Messiah ever find himself in a place like that? He absolutely did. And what did God do? He parted the sea. He kicked down the door. He sent from on high and took him. He reached into the grave, into the darkest dark of death, and he rescued him. God the Father rescued the Messiah Jesus in the resurrection. And the resurrection was for what? It was for him to be Exalted. Remember, resurrection and exaltation go together. We saw that in Psalm 16. We see it again here in Psalm 18. David's rescue and triumph points to the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. That is the greater rescue and triumph to come. It's that after Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, after Jesus was held captive in Sheol, he was not abandoned there, but God raised him. God rescued him, and then God exalted him to his right hand, which means that Jesus, right now, right now, Jesus is, is raised, resurrected, and exalted at the right hand of God. And what does that exaltation mean? It means that he triumphs. Right now, like currently, real time, in this moment, as you're watching this video right now, Jesus is the resurrected and exalted King. He is the rescued and triumphant Lord, and he reigns over the nations. How does he reign? How does Jesus reign right now over the nations? 
is by his gospel advancing throughout this entire world and men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation bow the knee to him. That's how he reigns. That's how he triumphs over the nations. One day Jesus will come and he will come to this earth. He will physically reign over a new earth. That will happen. But right now, his reign is spiritual, which means he reigns now through his Holy Spirit. And his triumph extends in this world through the obedience of faith among the nations. And this is actually so important to gospel doctrine. This is like so important to reality that that Paul opens the book of Romans with this point. You can go read it. I'm just going to paraphrase it now in Romans 1. First, Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And then Paul goes and he explains, what is this gospel? He says, it's the gospel concerning God's son, a son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, but then who was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection. His name is Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. And then Paul says that through Jesus, as an extension of his supremacy, Jesus made Paul to be an apostle. Paul is a messenger to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who belong to Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1, verses 1 to 6. And it's basically, it's the application of Psalm 18. The fulfillment of Psalm 18 is the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus that is active right now. Jesus right now is ruling over the nations by calling us and affecting in us to turn from our sins, put our faith in him, and glorify God for his mercy. In fact, Paul, he makes this point in Romans 15 when he quotes from Psalm 18. And I don't have time to unpack it all now, but that's what I I wrote to you about on Friday. So go read that on the website. I wrote about this on Friday because it's rich and I want you to see it. But basically what Paul's doing there in Romans 15 is he's telling the Gentile Christians in Rome that Jesus has welcomed them. Jesus has saved them for the glory of God. Their faith in Jesus, because of Jesus's resurrection and exaltation, their faith glorifies God. Jesus has led the nations by his triumph in their faith to praise God. It's like Jesus is the ultimate worship leader. And this is where like, this is where I really want to I, I want to bring this home, okay? So in this moment, like I'm talking directly to the people of City's Church, okay? Men and women of City's Church, you Gentiles according to the flesh. I want you to know that Psalm 18 matters for you because your faith, like right now, the very experience of your faith in this moment, it is a result of the triumph of Jesus. I'm not talking about just your conversion. 
This is not a one-time thing. I mean your active faith, your active faith. Throughout the week, every day, in every moment, when you are surrendering yourself to the Lordship of Jesus, it is because of his triumph. So every time you flee from sin, it's because Jesus reigns. Every time you humble yourself and serve one another, it is because Jesus reigns. Every time you bow your heart in prayer and come to God as your father, it is because Jesus reigns. Every time you lift your voice in praise to God for his mercy, it is because Jesus reigns. And every time you long to gather again as the church in worship, It is because Jesus reigns. The only reason any of us are Christians is because Jesus reigns. It's because Psalm 18 is true of Jesus. He is resurrected and exalted Jesus is raised. Jesus does triumph. And so let us praise God. Let us give God praise. And right now, that means we're going to praise him from all the different places that we're spread out in, in these twin cities. But we will gather again in worship and we will sing together of his glory. Amen.